0: Welcome to Episode 8 of the Profusion Data Podcast, the show that is statistically more likely to help you understand how data is applied in the real world. I know we have a longer a version rigorous, of that.
1: Very rigorous statement there, yes. So.
0: Yes. Uh, I'm Henrik Nordmark, Director of Science Data Innovation at Perfusion, and today we're talking to a great charity um, that Perfusion has been working with closely over the last uh, year or so, Girl Effect, Uh, They've been using data in really exciting and successful ways uh, to help uh, young girls, young women uh, using chatbots, and I can't wait to talk to them about it in more depth. Uh, But we'll get to that a little bit later, because first, it's time to introduce the man joining me as always on the show, my co-host, David Reinstein, Senior Economist at Rethink Priorities.
1: Hello, how are you? How are you doing?
0: Yeah, I hear you are in Puerto Rico.
1: Oh, wow. Yes, I am. It's more exciting when you say it. I, uh, but it's nonetheless extremely exciting to be here on my work. What are we supposed to call it? Work a day? Work Workation. Away? Workation. Uh, which is, uh, it's, it's lovely here. I'm taking some of that sun home with me in the form of a nice sunburn, which is morphing into a more of a suntan, but still on the sunburn side. And it's been great. I mean, we went to the jungle, uh, went, uh, snorkeling, Shall will be doing more of today maybe, beautiful nice. beaches, uh, saw a How's lot of the, the city, the old old San Juan is fantastic.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, the food's been rather nice, I can't complain about that. We lost water for a while, so that was a bit of a challenge, mm. but you know, it's going to just accentuate, it just accentuates the pleasure of having water when it comes back. <laughs> right? So I'm, get- yes. I'm getting the opportunity to appreciate running water.
0: And you're flying back home tomorrow, is that right?
1: That's the one, yeah. That's the one. Yeah.
0: Are you dreading uh going back to a colder climate?
1: I have a lovely house and it's it's nice to have a, yeah, it's it's nice to be home. So it it, sh- it should be okay. But yeah, I'll definitely have a lot to miss here. I mean, go around the corner, all these restaurants, and the beach and uh The old San Juan, it really feels like a piece of of Southern Europe or the Canary Islands. Nice. Recommended. Tyler, thanks on your end.
0: Yeah, um, I've been doing a lot more biking recently, uh, especially now that it's getting a little bit lighter in the day. Uh, I've been biking to a place called uh, Souk and Machosan, um, which are not terribly far away from where I live, out in in Victoria. Uh, Which one, Souk
1: or Machosan? Two different Uh, places, or is it one place? They they are two different places, yes. Okay.
0: Yes. Uh, Souk has uh, a large kind of First Nation population, Um, and Mm -hmm. uh, Machozen is just a lovely little town.
1: It's got uh, a good Second Nation population, would you say? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, I'm not sure about the demographics of Machozen. I haven't looked them up, but uh, yes. Yeah, sounds lovely. All right, well... um, I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that uh, in our previous podcast, we spoke a little bit about cybersecurity and at the time we were even speculating about um, a possible situation in which Russia might uh, engage in some s- cyber attacks. Obviously now we've seen some of these things come true, uh, not just in terms of cyber attacks, but an actual um, invasion and our parts go out to all the families and people affected by this, uh, both in in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, We know there's a a huge Ukraine diaspora as well.
1: Would Uh, that it was only cyber warfare, right? I mean, that's in a way, that's the best kind of warfare because it doesn't usually cost lives. Indeed. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Karina Michelle, who's the head of Creative at Girl Effect. And our very own, well, your very own BI analyst at Profusion, Mana Tariq. And what's the connection between those two, Henrik?
0: Well, Mana actually uh, did her MSC at the University of Essex and was part of the Profusion Data Academy MSC student placement program. And so she'll be telling us a little bit about that.
1: One of the many success stories. Indeed. This is going to be interesting, I think. I mean, I like the idea of pairing someone who's on the program side, or who's on the sort of, here's what we do as an organization side, not a tech person, with their with the data science person, and getting both perspectives together. So I'm looking yeah, forward to that. Yeah, I think that. that's a
0: really nice mix of uh, the technical and the kind of commercial aspects, or, or in this case, uh, organizational aspects, since it is a charity after all. All right, let's get into it. Bam. Hello, and welcome to the show, Karina and Mana. How are you guys doing?
3: Good, good, thank you. Good, thank you. Not too bad.
0: Well, I actually know both of you relatively well.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, but for the benefit of my co-host David and also all of our audience on the interweb, uh maybe you want to introduce yourselves?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to go first. Uh so I'm Karina, the head of Create at Girl Effect. Um, Girl Effect is an NGO and I've been working for Girl Effect for about 10 years. But previous to Girl Effect, I was a fashion designer. So I don't even know how I ended up into this world. Um, But yeah, uh, I work for Girl Effect.
1: You said the head of create. What does that mean?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so Girl Effect, we create a lot of media, a lot of content, uh, films, music. Uh, So I'm a little bit like a creative director. Um, And as a global head of create, I work with teams um, across Africa, across Asia, um, and helping them to create chat shows, talk shows, radio dramas, chat bots. But yeah, all all of that is developed through our department called the Create Team. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting title, you know, head of Create.
0: And I guess it goes well with your, you have a master's in fine arts, I think. Is that right? Uh,
2: I do. I do have a master's in fine arts. Um, It was in sustainability and fashion. Uh, So in my previous life as a fashion designer, I was doing a lot of research into uh, fashion behind the label, so I lived and worked inside of an India garment factory for four years um, on the oh, production wow. lines, um, and I shot a documentary film um, about fashion behind the label and the humanity and the people that make our clothes. Um, so but that was you, part You of...
1: actually lived in the
2: factory? I did, yeah. Yeah, I did. What? Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> it <was pretty laughs> Is crazy. it
1: comfortable in a factory or not Not so much?
2: Uh, not so much, um, but it was – Absolutely amazing in the terms of sort of creative freedom that I had. Nice. I was a young student designer. I graduated in 2018 at the you know the time of the recession, um, and I wasn't that keen to enter into the glamorous fashion world of like New York fashion and Paris. And was very much interested in 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 a, in a different uh, way of approaching fashion. So um, yeah, got to uh, got to uh, work for a company that was looking at how they can um, integrate more sustainable. And socially responsible practices, and decided to go, yeah, stay and live there, um, in the factory compound, which was massive. It was about ten thousand uh, workers, and I get, I had, I lived with the, the the women that made the clothes as well.
0: Very very cool, mm-hmm. and also so very topical. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about ESG these days, and just sustainability more generally. Yeah. Um, so a bit of a pioneer, I guess. Yeah,
2: What's I ESG? Wondering.
1: Environmental, sustainable.
2: Good.
0: Uh, Social and governance, I think. Yeah. Got it. All right. Uh, Mana, do you want to go next?
3: Yeah. um, Hi, everyone. My name is Mana. I work as a BI analyst at Profusion. And previously, I've been a part of Data Academy, also at Profusion. That's how I came to know about Profusion. And that's how my relationship with Girl Effect also started. Um, And in terms of experience, uh, previously, I've also worked with a healthcare analytics firm based in California. And I have a degree in data science. That's where I find my passion for BI from. And that's all about me.
0: You also spend a bit of time at Teradata, if I remember correctly.
3: Yes, I interned at Teradata and it was there that I found that I really wanted to get into data science. That's what I wanted to do because my bachelor's was in software engineering and people normally push women to go into lesser technical fields, even if they're doing a major in them. Not us. But, yeah. Indeed.
1: So, by analogy, you should have lived inside of a database after your no, – I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay, you, you brought something up that – maybe we get to it later in the episode, but you brought up the uh, so-called Data Academy, which is something that I've been involved with too – should we clue in the audience on what that is, or is that is that later in the podcast?
0: Yeah, no, let's clue them in. Um, so I think we might have briefly mentioned in one of our previous episodes, but uh, the Data Academy is a initiative within Profusion to train the next generation of data professionals, data engineers, data scientists, uh, BI analysts, uh, data consultants, and there's different streams to that. Yeah. So on the one hand... We look at uh, placing master students from uh, various universities, including, for example, Mana, who was studying at the University of Essex, uh, and finding a, a great host organization that has an interesting project that they might want to do over six weeks. Um, needs to be, you know, relatively well contained because it can't kind of like overflow beyond those six weeks. Um, but we really hope that you know the organization gets value from it. Um, and at the same time that it's academically rigorous enough for the, the university to, you know, sanction it as, okay, this is uh, uh, a worthwhile intellectual right. endeavor right. worthy of an MSC dissertation.
1: It's a really interesting projects, And really, I think, in many cases, the people at the organization that they're working for actually end up having this sort of three-way conversation with the student or four-way even with the student. With profusion, who's giving all sorts of guidance and with this sort of academic advisor at at Essex or the university. So that, that was been a big, that's, that was a big part of the data academy, which, which Mana will probably talk about more in in her experiences with it. And then the other part. Is there's training and there's also are we calling it upskilling or what are we calling it? Which is sort of the data literacy part where yes we want the we want at least I want the the CEO C suite types to really get their hands dirty and and you know go a little bit outside their comfort zone in understanding about data.
0: Uh, you're right. There's a couple other strands. There's the upskilling and reskilling str- strands. Um, the upskilling is basically saying. Okay, you maybe are working in finance, or you're working in some other area, and you might not want to become a data scientist yourself, but you might want to, you know, learn some of the skills so that you can, I don't know, maybe do a bit of coding in Python, uh, analyze your data a little bit more effectively than you otherwise would be able to do. And then the reskilling is literally like, well, okay, I'm a software engineer now, uh, but uh, actually, uh, I would love to become a data engineer or I would love to become a data scientist. Uh, so we do a bit of that as well. But I think one of our most interesting and kind of flagship programs right now is this uh, new Data for Leaders program uh, that we've launched uh, where you know CEOs, CMOs, uh, COOs uh, can come onto this course and just learn a lot more about how they can harness the power of of data and maybe how to build their own data team. Uh, what's the right mix of data analysts, data scientists, data engineers? Um, what are the kinds of questions they should be asking
1: yeah. of their their team? So
0: learn that the language kind of blind Yes,
1: learn, learn the, the language. Key, some of the key principles to understand things like what what are we talking about when we mean validation, precision, and recall that that sort of thing. Yes, which come up a lot and you don't, you know, you can learn it and then your eyes won't be glazing over every time in that part of the meeting. Anyways. That's
0: exactly right. All right. Well, let's get back to our guests. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, so why don't you guys tell me a little bit. I mean, obviously I, I know about the project because I was the one supervising out the perfusion, but um, Amana, Karina, why don't you tell me about the project we did last summer using NLP and NLU, natural language processing and natural language understanding.
2: That's right, yeah. Um, so yeah, the project uh, that we did with Mana was based off a brief that Girl Effect um, basically presented an offered to Mana and see if she was interested um, in helping us find solutions. And the, the challenge that we were facing at that time um, was we were building chatbots. Uh, we were building chatbots in South Africa and in India. Um, and the purpose of those chatbots was to be able to deliver um, critical information, life-changing information to girls. Um, and we call this chatbot Big Sis um, in South Africa. And it oh. was designed to answer questions that loads of girls have when it comes to growing up, navigating adolescence. Those questions that might feel a little bit sensitive or embarrassing, like STIs, uh, sex, period, body curiosities. Um, And a lot of the issues that we find uh, with girls when they lack this information, it really does make them vulnerable to early pregnancies from contracting STIs or HIV. It's quite critical for them to get these answers. So Big Sis was a chatbot we developed on WhatsApp and Messenger to really be that safe space where she can get those answers in a non-judgmental way, where she feels comfortable to ask Big Sis and discuss those questions. Um, and the idea is that hopefully that she's able to get these answers that perhaps she might feel a little bit more confident to access a health service, go to a clinic when she's ready mm-hmm. to. Um, although the, the issues that we do face when we're using um, natural language understanding and natural language processing is a lot of the current intelligence that are out there are not really built off the data or the language that girls speak. So the language that girls mm. speak online in India and the language that girls and the dialect that they speak um, uh, in in South Africa, it's really quite difficult to use just those off the table models. Uh, but fortunately, because right. we've been working in the space for over 10 years, Girl Effect's been able to mount quite a large amount of data, which was sort of the first iteration of our first um, intelligences and our first um, NLP models. But the work that we did with Mana specifically was on our chatbot in India called Behen, which in Hindi means speak sister. And just as much as big sis, she offers that space for girls to ask questions and get answers. Um, the issue that we had with English is what, uh, what we sometimes refer to it, is that the way that girls speak online in India, it's a mix between Hindi and English. Um, and it's quite difficult so for us Yeah, to use, again, those NLP models. So we really, the brief, yeah, go for it.
1: No, I think we want to get into more detail on that and and engage Mana on on that problem and how to solve that problem. But I have some like deep existential, I don't know if that's the right word, deep foundational (laughs) questions to to ask, You know, what is girl effect uh, or what is this chatbot and what does it do? And this comes up in a lot of other contexts. Should we have a chatbot? What can a chatbot do for us? So the natural you know skeptics response would say wait a second why don't these girls and young women just why don't they search using a regular search engine won't that get them where they want why don't they search using wikipedia in hindi or something like that what does the chatbot do that other search tools won't do for them
2: yeah it's a very good question and oftentimes we say we're trying to compete with google but when we do research with girls um, and they do go to google for these questions the reality is that it can feel quite a cold experience, and that they're typing in these questions. Google's offering so much information, they don't know it's credible. And when you're typing questions around sex or relationships or boys, a lot of times you're getting really inappropriate content. So, girls are learning about their mm, bodies right. in inappropriate ways. Um, and so Sys helps through the persona that we create with Sys, through the brand that we create with Sys, we're able to build that trust and credibility with girls and give her content in her language on the platforms where she's already spending a lot of time. And so she feels mm-hmm. that the information is credible. She can rely on it. And she's really relying on that emotional uh, hook and that emotional bond that she's building with BigSys.
0: And if I remember correctly, in the day set, you actually observe a lot of small talk, right? Which kind of indicates that there is that emotional bond happening.
2: Exactly. Which I
0: find fascinating.
2: Yeah. Um, And and very true. We didn't actually decide to use WhatsApp or Messenger for a very long time. That was a very intentional choice. And it was based off of years of learnings. So the first time we ever built a, a, a brand to be able to answer girls' questions was in Rwanda almost 11 years ago now. Um, it was called Baza Shangazi, which means ask auntie in Kinyarwanda. And it was literally <laughs> a column in a magazine that we distributed to girls across every district of Rwanda. And it became absolutely sensational, and we had to turn into a talk show where girls could SMS questions into Baza. It was the most popular talk show in Rwanda. We then replicated that in many different countries, and we got to a point where there was only so much that one person can do to answer all the questions from girls. We received, we have about over 300,000 questions over the last few years in Rwanda. For a country that small with only an audience of maybe just about a million girls, that's a lot of data. Um, So we were looking at, right, well, how can we answer these questions at scale? Um, How can we be able to get uh, girls the information that they need? And we also were noticing sort of the increasing rate of mobile penetration, um, increasing access to Internet and social media. And quite interesting, a trend in social media where girls are not wanting to talk about these things in public social media spaces, but in private messaging and dark messaging Mm So we were early on in partnership with WhatsApp before they made their API public. Started to build and prototype Big Sis about five years ago. Right.
1: The the one thing I was I was wondering about, and, and maybe well, Mana, you can speak to this. So this is a chatbot. What are the different kinds of chatbots? So this is a chatbot that learns um, how to understand what the human users are are saying, but it there's it's a different it's a different type of chatbot than than a chatbot, let's say, or not really chatbot, but then like a language model like GPT-3. And maybe that's about the NLP processing, natural language processing versus NLU, natural language understanding. Can you help us figure out what, what these differences are?
3: Yes, yeah, sure. Um, since up till recently, you would have noticed that there has been a lot of talk in NLP and NLU and the chatbots that are being built are uh, using neural networks to learn from the behavior of what is being sent and to become better at that. Um, the chatbot currently we were working with as a part of bolbehin was a menu-based chatbot, which means that it used to send users a series of options that you could choose from and you would be sent forward an answer based on uh, what you chose. And we wanted to convert that to into a chatbot that would take your message as it is and respond to your message just like that instead of being able to choose from the options. Because coming back to the point of users feeling that emotional connection, if they can actually get responses to their messages just like that, it, the emotional bond would be stronger and they would feel like they're actually speaking to a person, which is a perception that was felt in the messages. And that's what we wanted to achieve. and uh, that was basically what the crux of the NLP and NLU was based on to be able to make the chatbot understand the messages after translating them and get out the main idea that the users are trying to look for, what the main information point is.
1: So the, I mean so the first step was moving from I, I think you had a word for this sort of quote AI Henrik, which is just just a, just a flow chart. Basically, based AI, uh, yeah, symbolic AI, yeah, so it's related. So, it's in a sense, maybe by analogy, related to that, moving to a space where people could enter any sort of message and it would in, it would do its best at interpreting what it was that they were asking. Um, yeah. And two things that I want to I want to delve into with that. One is um, you say, and that this this engages both the technical and the human side of things. You say that people were starting to sort of have the feeling that they were talking to a real person. Now, I'm wondering, to what extent do people who maybe don't have a lot of experience with computers know that they aren't actually talking to a real person? Or, you know, to what extent were people, do you think, actually fooled or some part of their brain thought that the computer had a personality or or something of that sort?
3: I think because the way Girl Effect has been branding their products is also very emotional and personal. And they have made it look like it's an actual person out there to help you because it's called bol behen or ask auntie so even the branding shows that there's a woman there i remember on the logo for the chatbot um and the i think the extent depends on where the users are from but where the the base for bol behen was there was i think a huge majority of people thinking that they're actually speaking to an auntie who's trying to help them find answers that's why they used to leave numbers their cell phone numbers they used Aww. to leave small talk questions and they used to have amazing feedbacks i love you stuff like that so that was all there
1: are you concerned about anything negative from yeah. i can't think of anything no I, we are the, we are definitely we like we're,
2: we're saying oh
1: please call me i'm in a i'm in a crisis situation do you have some way of yeah. of of ch-
2: yeah, absolutely. We, we, the way that we try and design the bot is to manage expectations. And from the very get go, although the way the language, the persona is meant to feel as friendly as possible in the onboarding, we say we're a robot. You know, we cannot, there is a limitation in what Behan and Big Sis can do. So we were very, from a safeguarding point of view, it's very important for us to manage that expectations of girls because we're not experts in emergency services. What we have been able to do um, before we even launched is we anticipate that no matter what, no matter how many times you tell a girl, we're, we're not a real human being, we are a robot, she will inevitably reach out to us for help we have to be prepared for that. Um, So we work with on the ground partners and we've built systems within BigSys to detect sensitive disclosures, to detect if a girl is in need of help. Um, And we've we've been quite fantastic at doing that. And we've been endorsed by UNICEF as a best practice example, because we're seeing quite a lot of chatbots being built, especially in the time of COVID. And a lot of them are not being able to respond to these types of urgent needs of their audience. Um, so we've been building a dictionary of the types of phrases, words, and language that girls and young women use that might suggest that they're in need of help. And we build uh, conversations to support them in that time of need, as well as signpost them to those people on the ground that can help them. But for, first and foremost, we do try to manage that expectations with yes, our users. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: That makes sense. Henrik, should we move on to a, to chatting about – I think there's two directions we could go here. We could – Talk about the problem of the of the language of the 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 okay. use of of two languages, two human languages. Should we or should we yeah. go into the tech at this point?
0: I think it's worth uh, speaking about the language first, and, and so, we can deep dive into the other
1: matters. I, so, I guess what I wanted to follow up on with with the uh, and maybe you both can speak to this. I'm not sure. So, these girls, women, young women, um, they speak a mixture of two languages, right? And that's particularly difficult for, I suppose, language engines to deal with. So that's the tech part of it. But I'm also sort of curious: why do they speak a mixture of two languages? Do they know they're speaking a mixture of two languages, or could they be say, "Oh, could they, if they wanted to, say, I'm only going to write in English or Hindi"? How difficult is that for them?
0: And if I understand correctly, it's actually three languages. Really, there's Hmm. like pure English, Um, pure Hindi, and then Hinglish, where they're really kind of intertwining the two
3: yeah and there were a few few very few messages from other regional languages as well that i would say maybe tamil bangaluru regional languages within india there were very few messages out there um so yeah you can't really (laughs) restrict them to one or two so there were ample languages
2: yeah Uh, participants
1: if you said please write in english or please choose one language to write in would that be challenging for them do you think
2: I don't think it's challenging I don't think it's just as much as like I might have an accent or I might speak in a certain dialect I may not be conscious of it and um, in, in how I do that and the way that girls speak um, and and the language and dialects and that they choose to speak in it's just part of their culture um, and to ask them to speak any anyway differently mm-hmm. um, I don't think we would want that because that's that's their identity yeah
1: feel less comfortable I got it I get it. Yeah. So maybe so maybe this would be a good transition to the to the tech uh, discussion and and I guess the one question that I want to ask that I want to get to is in what ways does your how does your natural language processing and understanding model work what is the difference between those things how does it learn and how does it not learn in the way that maybe other language models learn but also, okay, also another thing I want to get at is is what is the specific challenge? Why is it particularly difficult to deal with multiple languages mixed together?
3: Um, I think it is difficult because there's not a lot of work being done in this uh, sector, especially uh, for chatbots. Primarily, you'll see that they're mostly based, uh, the text messages to be sent in English, or if they're... To be launched in one certain area, they have a proper language assigned from the start. So the users don't have the freedom to write in whatever language they want. Um, And so dealing with that problem is technically a bit hard because there's not a lot of support available. Even if you look at the NLP models that are already built and trained, you would find support for English, French, German uh, the languages that have been researched on for quite a long while, while Henglish is a language that was just made by, you know, youngsters who wanted to text faster. So they were like, let's just write mm. Hindi in English. So there's so not more, a lot of yep.
1: Is it more difficult because there's not as consistent a set of rules for that language? I mean, maybe help us understand how natural language processing works and why that presents a specific ch- challenge for it.
3: Natural languages processing basically works by enabling functions and tools that can help your model understand what the user is saying in their natural language which could be English which could be French and to perform certain operations to extract certain information from those. Now this is a challenge because you are dealing with multiple languages and at the start of receiving a message you're not sure which language it is. It could be
2: English, it could be English, it could be Hindi. But also, I, would, I think part of the, 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 the challenge is that there's not a lot of data about these languages collected in low- and middle-income countries. So to build those models, to build those intelligences, you do need to have a lot of data, of which girl effect we have started to build that out. Um, but because most engines are not built off the data of low- and middle-income countries, uh, you were basically starting from scratch here. Of course. Yeah.
1: But maybe digging a little deeper, um, given my sort of General idea of what natural language processing might be, and that it that it's related to AI and, and machine learning. I I think the the two pieces to it that that seem very important are okay. The idea of having training data and you can validate on, right? And then also thinking about what the unit is and how these different units of data connect. So the unit's not just a word; it might be a phrase, it might be an intention it might be mapped into some sort of mathematical space. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand that a little bit better. And and again, particularly why that might be frustrated by having multiple, um, multiple languages in there. Like, what do you train on? What do you test on? How do you know if it's doing well?
3: Exactly. Um, so I would explain this by an example. When we started working on the project, my initial thought was that we're going to build a model using our own data set and we're going to train it. We're going to hyper parameterize it and we're going to have our own model with our own data set. And I started the search for finding a data set that translates English to English and using that to train my model on. And after I think at least one and a half week of searching, I found a data set with 500 words and those were all educational phrases that you would normally hear written in a news a newspaper or you would have them maybe in news or ever books. So they were not kind of words that would be mm-hmm. used in normal messages or in normal communication. So they were basically something that we couldn't use. And so that was the point when we had to decide what are we going to go for and that eliminated the idea of building our own model because we did not have any data.
0: And I remember these discussions, and and so at the end, you decided to start translating. Is that right? Yes. Tell us a little Um, bit about that.
1: So just to give a little backup here, so maybe I can try to get the outsider's perspective on this. So first, the first question, you were trying to build a model that sort of matched English to English, and then you could then plug that into maybe existing models that worked on english um but then in order to get that translation you need some data to to test it on meaning say does this map to this does this map to that is it working well is it working not well if not let's iterate let's move in this direction or that direction but you're saying you didn't have anything you could use for that so you had to actually go in find some conversations and translate them yourself is that is that a correct characterization
3: Yes, that that is pretty much correct. I even contacted some students based in India that I had on my LinkedIn. And I was like, just just to try one more thing. Do you have any data that's translated from Hindi to English or from English to English? And they did not, which is when we decided to translate the data first and then apply NLP models on it. Because you do have support, you do have trained models that work on English, and we needed the data to be in English.
0: Right, and so I guess at that point, you decided to use the the, the Google API, and essentially everything got translated into this common language. Um, and from there, you started doing a whole bunch of other uh, yeah. pre-processing, uh, some named entity recognition and stuff. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Let's so yeah. slow me um, down a little bit, right? When we use technical <laughs> sure. terms like pre-processing, entity recognition, you mentioned hyperparameters. Uh, let's try to give the audience who are not already data scientists some clue on these things.
3: Yeah. Um, So I'm going to start from the start. Thank you. Um, When I started working on the project, I identified that there were three major problems that we needed to solve. The first one being that the data is using multiple languages. We need to make it coherent. We need to have it in one form so that we can apply the already established NLP models, techniques that are there. The second one being that the data consisted of a lot of small talk, a lot of hi's, hello's, how are you, thank you, I'm going to miss you, and things oh. like that, that we needed to be able to separate at, at one point because we're not, we won't be giving any information out to the user based on that. And the last part was to be able to pre-process. here means that cleaning the data of any useless information that, does, that would not basically account for or that would not be necessary for the rest of the processing that we need to do. And at this point, we basically needed to find out keywords within that data that the users wanted to know about. Basically, if the user is sending a message, um, I have period pain, which would be sent in Hindi as "mujhe periods We would get the key, we need to get the keywords periods and pain so that we can provide information on those keywords back to the user. So these were the three areas that I identified in the start, and that's what I worked on. And if you want me to go on with explaining the, the three, should I?
0: Yeah, okay. please do.
3: Um, so for the first part that we identified being the translation bit, uh, I tried working out a new model. I tried finding data. And after that, I researched a bit and I found that Facebook Translate, if you, if you are a keen user of Facebook, you would know that people's statuses, even if they're written in their regional languages, can be translated just by one click and you get the option and they'll be translated to your language, not even English. You can translate them to any language that you have your app set up in. So that means that Facebook is really good and they have strained and established models. But even they did not have support for English publicly available. They do have models that are there, but they don't have them publicly available. So you can't use them. Um, and then c- came Google. If you write in Google Translate anything, if you open your Google app and you write in any language, it would translate and give it back to you in English or whatever language you want. And that's why we decided to go with using the Google Translate API. What it does is it detects the sentence itself. So you don't need to tell the model what the sentence is. So if it's in Hindi, if it's in English, you don't need to tell it before. You just need to send the sentence to, to the API. It would detect the language. It would then translate it to English and it would return the translated version back to you.
1: But how does that relate to the... I mean, you said that you collected your own data and were... It sounded like you were doing some sort of translation and building some sort of translation tool yourself.
3: Um that is not possible at the point because we were working on a project that was 6 weeks long and we yes, I needed to I needed to deliver something by the end of 6 weeks. So my options were limited. Maybe if I had, maybe if I was writing my PhD thesis on this, I would have created my own dataset. No, because
1: sounds like a, it's a very difficult problem. I was trying to get some insight into. <laughs> so I have a series of texts in both languages. How do I turn that into something that can somehow translate anything someone else types from one language to another? Do you have like an insight into how that would even work? It's, it seems challenging to me.
3: Yeah, I mean. Uh, If you do, if you manage to create a data set that's, you know, at least 50,000 phrases or 50,000 sentences, you can use a pre-trained model to work on it and map the, uh, the newer options to their translations. But you need to have a very huge data set for that. And that was what we were lacking in. But if, you know, if I could do things differently, if I had a lot more time, maybe I would start collecting the data, collaborate with some students.
1: So it's, so it's, so I have this, 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 let's say all of Shakespeare's works in English and in, uh, French or something. And then it, it says, okay, it's, it comes up with some sort of connection between the two. It says this w- mapped, this thing mapped to this thing, this thing mapped to this thing. Then you give it something new. Yeah. Right? How will it then start to think about what should I map this new thing to, given that it's seen how all the other stuff is mapped?
3: Yeah. Um, so there's two things. Firstly, there's word-to-word translations where, you know, one word stands for this meaning in English. So there's a word in Hindi. For example, it's dard, which translates to pain. And you have a set. But then the other thing is sequence. So, you know, after a certain word, you will have a preposition. You're more likely to have another certain word placed. For example, I, next to I, you'll probably have I have, I am. And you know things like that, so it's it it works on using both of these knowledge and both of the and understanding of both of these in your training data set maps that understanding to your testing data set and when you get a new sentence, it reads the pattern and the sequence of the words and then it knows the meaning of each of the words and then it tries to map that into an output
1: and how does it know and sorry I know I'm really going deep in this, and this is probably a, a- Month, uh, years of, 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 of study at university, but so, so you now have the, t- the testing data set, I think we called it. And then it, it gives a shot at it. You give it a new Shakespeare sonnet. It tries to map it into French and then it shows the human translated French version. How does it know how close it is? How does it measure the proximity to know whether to move in some direction or another in, in terms of its parameters?
3: So you have an actual output and you will have the output that your model created. And now it's going to compare the two. It's going to see what percentage was correctly translated. And based on that, you would get a score for your model, an accuracy score, which would determine how much of your input was correctly translated to your output based on what the actual thing is.
1: But it won't be an exact word matching, right? Because two translations can both be correct if they get the meaning the same, even if, you know one says the dark evening and one says the evening was dark or something like that or, or the, you know was i'm thinking trying to think of a synonym but i can't think of it right now how does it like measure how close it was to being correct given that the exact words won't line up correctly
3: um so one thing is as i said that you need to also look at the sequence of words being mm-hmm. present in in your input but also it- the systems being made these days for translation for NLP are so intelligent that they're actually able to predict that these are both the same sentences and they can actually because it's the same was and is is you know mm. it's this it's just a different form of verb but it's the same verb so they can map it back to being the same meaning it also yeah. depends on the kind of model you're using but nowadays you get models that can actually say that they're they're both the same sentences there's no difference
1: because mm-hmm, it look, looks at the structure of the language yeah. and, and such. Okay. Well, that, sorry for digging into so deeply into that hole. I just find so it fascinating. Just because
0: this is a really, really hot topic right now in data science, uh, people keep throwing this around all the time. Can you tell us a little bit about transformers and what role that played in your project?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, transformers have been around for quite a while now, but they have been recently been infused with neural networks mm-hmm. and have been made to... With other models and work that way. The basic concept of using a transformer is that just the thing that I just explained that it one, it uses the relationship between your input and your output text, and two, it uses the relationship between your input text. So the entities between your input text, um, the different entities that you do have. And then it uses that knowledge from both of those relationships to map out your output. It understands both the relationship between input and output, but also the input occurrences to understand what is the data set about? What are the words that are commonly used? What are the things that are commonly said in this data set?
1: And then it transforms into a truck and drives away, right? Yeah.
3: Transformers are basically based (laughs) on transfer learning, which... If if I have to explain in very simple terms, it's just transferring from input to output. So it's transfer learning from one structure to another structure. I,
1: transfer learning is like the ability to apply uh, a concept in a new setting. Isn't that right? Is, yes.
3: I... That's exactly what the transformer does. It, the concept here is the relationship between your input mm-hmm. and output and your input entities. And that concept is applied to your testing data set or the real data set that you want to use your transformer on.
1: Very exciting.
0: All right. Well, I think it's time for a quick break. So, uh, we do these breaks to introduce one of our lovely colleagues at Profusion. And today we will have Claire Hutchinson, our managing director for the Data Academy. Take it away, Claire.
4: Hello, I'm Claire Hutchinson, I'm the Managing Director of the Data Academy at Profusion. I joined the business back in February this year to scale the Data Academy from its early roots. My background is in talent and skills, whether that's recruitment, early talent development, training. I've regularly taken programmes from concept stage and scaled them nationally. Um, With the Data Academy, I'm really looking forward to that challenge of of taking something which has been piloted and take it to, to full scale over the next year or two. We're just in the process of recruiting our next cohort of students for the summer student placements. This is the time when we go out and source the placements that they'll work on over the six-week period over the summer. If you're interested in talking to us about a potential placement for a student, which could be a proof of concept, a well-defined data project at a really, really competitive rate, then get in touch with us either via our website or at dataacademy@profusion.com. We're looking forward to creating some really exciting projects and partnerships. We hope that you want to take part and help us to develop the next generation of data scientists.
0: Welcome back to the Profusion Data Podcast, where we are still talking to Karina and Mana all about Girl Effect, chatbots, and the Data Academy. I think, David, you had some thoughts over the break.
1: Yeah. I'm. Uh, so some things that I'm involved in, or I've been associated with, with chatbots is a chatbot to convince people, or and also the idea of of these sophisticated chatbots that mimic humans and get better at sounding like a human, or get better at convincing people to do a certain thing. And I'm thinking about this in the context of effective charitable giving. But I was wondering, in in your context, um, as as we've spoken, you're focusing on the part of the learning, the part of the artificial intelligence that best gets at the intent of the young woman's question and then gives a pre-decided answer where that answer itself is not based on machine learning or artificial intelligence. That's just a predecided answer. Yeah. One thing I was wondering is whether you thought there was scope for the chatbot to do more learning in terms of what answers it should provide. And that in terms of that, that the, the young women appreciate those answers and maybe even measuring whether the young women are taking actions that would seem to be the, the healthy actions. I know you don't want to prescribe them what to do, but you, you see what I'm saying? Getting more feedback on the answers part of it or maybe on sort of not even just talk, 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 answer, but talk, 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 answer follow up, you know, and, and get the whole holistics of that. What do you think the use of that might be? or the possibility for that? I mean,
2: I think it could be be incredibly useful. I think um, any hesitancy we would have had around jumping into that would be just simply the fact that we talk about quite sensitive things, that if you get wrong, you could do real harm. Um, Mm. So I think we would have to do that with such a high degree of confidence um, that we don't give such a a wrong answer to the girl that it could put her in harm's way. Um, but it is a poten- it is potential. That sounds really interesting. Um, I think our first priority would be to, one, can the bot understand that intent? And can we mirror that intent with what we know is going to be the right answer, which is mm-hmm. why that answer is, mm-hmm. answer is pre-written. If we were to do that, and it would be interesting and, and quite cool and innovate, innovative to do that, we'd have to do that with high degree of confidence that the yes. bot can do that well.
1: And I mean, I've seen how the GPT-3 bot, for instance, gives some wacky answers yeah, to yeah. questions because it's just predicting what weird people on the internet would do. So yeah. there you, I can definitely see the sensitivity there. Um, Mana, maybe you want to weigh in and how difficult would something like that be to do? If you found a space, you know, can you think of a space where you would be able to or want to learn from how the, the girls were responding? Uh, and to to make the bot give better answers. Could you, do you have a sense of how feasible that might be?
3: Um, that would depend on how much data we can collect in that area. If we can check how many of those girls actually went to those links provided for information, mm. how much time they spent reading the information that we sent forward, Um, if they're spending a good amount of time that would mean that they're actually reading the entire content Um, but if they are scrolling through or asking something really quickly that would mean that it didn't really go through the whole thing Um, um, but it's definitely possible and I think it would improve the model a lot the chatbot a lot but it all depends on how much freedom we have Mm -hmm. over what we can collect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could imagine doing something in between where you don't have the thing generating its own language, but you have a set of possible answers that are all acceptable and, and do some testing on which, which yield the the, the best feedback. I guess the uh, okay, possibility
0: going back to the natural language generation idea would be to maybe just restrict it to like purely the small talk. But as soon as you detect intent, then you you know have those like yeah. more canned responses that yes. uh, are more curated.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very possible.
0: All righty. Well, uh, why don't we um, move on to – I'm just kind of curious to hear from Karina about – and from Mana about their experience with uh, the MSC placement uh, program of the Data Academy. Uh, was that uh, a useful way of kind of bringing things forth and, and making progress on this? And uh, what do what you see are, are, are the benefits, both from a student perspective and, and from a host organization perspective?
1: What was good? What could have been better, too, right? Think also yeah, about what could
2: the Go for it, Are You first. Um,
3: okay. <laughs> I was waiting for you to speak. Um. So my experience of Data Academy was amazing, and I think it made me way more confident uh right. because it was right in the last leg of my degree it enabled me to work with uh, an industry partner uh, on a real project with real data and uh, before we actually started working on the project we had two weeks of training that w- that covered almost all the major areas in data science and i still remember stuff from that training whenever we talk about it whenever it's there in projects in client scoping calls it helps me understand things And I I would definitely recommend it to all the students out there in the last leg of their master's trying to complete the education. And even the project was refreshing in its own way because it was a bit different from the challenges or the kind of projects that you normally get in data science. Uh, Because not only the idea, but also what we were trying to achieve was just so, I mean, it had value. It had social value. We were trying to do something for people. We were trying to do we were trying to create safe spaces that were not only just safe spaces, but they were informative and they had um, things that could actually help girls. And that in its own was just
2: really amazing.
0: That's great. Karina, do you want to give your perspective from a host organization point of view? Yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so from Girl Effects point of view, we've worked with many different uh, schools and partners. Uh, We've done work with UC Berkeley and worked with their students mm-hmm. as well. Um, but it was really nice in the way that uh, the work with Data Academy, um, University of Essex, and Profusion Lab, um, how that was structured, that is quite different to um, our previous experience, is that from both the Girl Effect point of view and a student point of view, the value of this work was equal. Whereas in past we've worked with other organizations and this was seen as more of an extracurricular project. Or what we were offering in terms of the brief was perhaps a little too complex, given the skills that the schools and uh, the skills that the students had at that time. So it wasn't quite an equal match. So I think with MANA, what we ended up finding is that we had quite a big challenge. And because this was quite important for MANA to, Mana to graduate with, um, we both had equal value and investment um, within this and both wanted each other to succeed. Um, and the fact that it's quite rapid um, of, a pro- of a project itself. She had six weeks to turn this around. Yeah. Obviously, from a girl effect point of view, you know, to have that extra resource and someone totally dedicated to a quite big challenge for us is fantastic. Um, a lot of the times we don't always have the time to pull away from the day to day work. I'm looking at budgets. I'm paying invoices. I'm looking at data sheets. Um, so to have that. You know, incredible brain power to focus on a solution really accelerates the work that we do. Um, and if if there was yes. anything different um, that I would have changed about it, what well, I think there has, in terms of what Mana delivered, there is a drop-off point. It's very intense, and and at the end we end up with a solution, but the onward journey of how you implement, maintain that yes. solution. That I think yes. uh, we've been trying to figure out. And I think we're, we're getting there. Um, we, we're, we're still figuring out how to integrate the solution fully into our chatbots. But that that would be the only thing.
1: And when you say quite, you mean very, right? Not a little bit. Because that's the difference between North American and British uh, interpretation of that word, actually.
2: Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. <guess>. yeah.
1: <laughs> so I'm just helping out with a little um, inter language translation. Yeah, here. I've been in the UK <laughs> too long.
2: I'm using very British speak. <laughs>
1: so so it seems that perfusion's role is largely being the the matchmaker first thinking of the projects or thinking of what organizations helping them come up with projects um also helping uh explain the projects in both directions and then there's also this training aspect, which I've been involved in a bit, which is, what is it, three days of training or a week of training? Uh,
0: no, it's actually a full two weeks A full uh, two of a professional weeks of tra- boot camp.
1: This um, is additional and, to what the MSc and, let's say, data science has learned at their university.
0: That's correct. So we sort of expect that uh, by the end of their modules, they will be reasonably technically competent, all the students. I mean, obviously, there's an interview process, and well, we, we try to you know, pick really competent and enthusiastic students. But we also feel that some of the things that uh, students might not get in the university context are some Mm -hmm. more of these soft skills. So how do you do uh, data science consulting? Uh, How do you deliver content in a way that's understandable to non-technical stakeholders? Um, How do you do data storytelling? Um, Think about, you know, data ethics and, and, and whatever solution you come up with.
1: But there's uh, so also we, some some technical content too, I think, that sometimes yes. universities miss out on. I remember you emphasizing SQL, the the database query language.
0: Yes, that is uh, that is one of the, the biggest gaps that I've seen in, at a lot of MSC data science programs across the UK, that there's a huge emphasis on the machine learning, the statistics, uh, programming in R and Python, but when it comes to actually retrieving the data you need, which tends to be done in SQL, um, that, that often seems to be a, a gap. So we definitely to spend some time with them on
1: that. And and what was the, in terms of this collaboration, what is really the university's role? And I'm thinking while doing this project, how did the university or the university help you? So
3: for me, I think the university's role was making sure that the project I was doing and the progress I was making was in conformity with Um, The guideline and the requirements for the dissertation and to complete my master's, that everything was, you know, whatever work I was doing was at least enough for me to be able to mark on. And there was a bit more guidance on the kind of models I could use, uh, what I could make better in my thesis, especially the written written format. Mm. Yeah.
1: So there was some guidance there and also, you know, to, to put a sort of nicer, to say it a nicer way, not, not just what would count, but what actually would, making sure this really would be an important learning experience for you. Is that is that a fair characterization?
3: Yes, yes, I would say so.
0: Yes, so basically all of our MSc data science students have both a, a profusion mentor supervisor and an academic supervisor. Uh in this case, the academic supervisor was um uh Professor Berthel Lawson, the University of Essex. Um and then I was the, the perfusion supervisor. And you know, I, I think both of us, Berthel and I, you know, trying to provide some technical guidance along the way. Obviously Berthel is looking at it much more from the perspective like, okay, is this academically rigorous enough? Um, has she thought about all the different methods that she could be using? Mm. Um, I'm perhaps a little bit more concerned about like are we going to be delivering the value mm-hmm. necessary for the host or organization? Uh, but you know these two goals are synergistic so often uh, yeah,
1: yeah well, I mean oftentimes. the academic the pursuit they're in the game to some extent of trying to build these techniques in a general way that will be helpful for. A range of organizations and and improve the techniques themselves and the science of it which isn't always what an organization will want they'll they'll have a very narrow goal in in most cases i would say
0: correct and i can't say that this is true in this particular project with uh, man and karina but i have been involved in other projects other data academy projects in which there was probably a slightly simpler solution that could have achieved the goals that maybe the host organization wanted to get to, but because we need to maintain a certain level of sophistication in terms of the messy dissertation, we mm-hmm. might kind of consciously choose to use uh, these more sophisticated techniques uh, and maybe use the simpler technique as just kind of like a baseline comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, I mean, I think there might be ways to get more value out of that, particularly in context involving nonprofit organizations where there's room for the nonprofit organization to even I'm just thinking in future to collaborate with other nonprofit organizations who might also be interested in these tools. So the benefit yielded by a more sophisticated approach might spill over more generally across the sector, which That's is true. something I'm trying to do with these effective giving, effective altruism collaborations. I'll, I'll tell you about it a different time. Anyways, that's great. Sh- should we move on to the fun part? Not that this wasn't fun, but <laughs> to the consciously th- let's have fun part of this. Uh...
0: Yes, we uh, play a couple of games. Um, one is called The Oracle. <laughs> so in The Oracle, we. Ask you guys to make some predictions about where you see the industry, uh, the, the, the things that you're working on, going. Yeah. Um, in the past, we've done an oracle looking forward a hundred years into the future, but we've decided that uh, maybe it'd be more interesting to ask about yeah. shorter-term predictions. Um, so, and in light
1: of current events, it's more likely, you know, we we know we're going to be here more likely to be here in a shorter term. So, hundred years, yes. we can't be quite so sure,
0: right? So, uh, let's start with where do you guys see the future of of chatbots, especially in this uh, space of you know helping young women or other vulnerable populations? Maybe one year from now. And then five years from now?
3: Mm. Um, I think one year from now, not a lot would have changed. But there would be a bit more awareness around the things that are happening to get to to the cause. But five years from now, I think bots would be way more enabled to detect what language the user was using, what they're trying to say, even if they're trying to say it in a more, you can say, slang sort of way instead of using proper words. To say it um, the responses would be more accurate they would be more curtailed to the uh, question that was asked or to what was said and especially in this space because organizations like girl effect are driving their forces to achieve uh, bots and spaces that help women solve their problems i think we would have uh, a bot that would actually be considered uh, whenever someone's in danger or whenever they need to speak to someone as their first resort.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Karina, want yeah. to give a stab at it?
2: Yeah, um, I think a year from now, I think there's two things that could happen. I think chatbots and AI, it's a very sexy thing to talk about. I also think that it's getting quite fatigued. Um, and so I think perhaps in a year now, we could outland up in a place where, oh, that was that that was that was a fad. Nobody really is that interested in it. Girl effect, like we may not find the funding of people wanting to invest in these t- this type yes. of work anymore because it's just no longer sexy and cool. There's, it's all about virtual reality in a year's time. But hopefully what we're able to do with the work like we've done with Mana is prove the real value that chatbots can do, that it could deliver real impact and the lives of girls. And perhaps in five years, what we see is that no girl can, doesn't have to go through adolescence not having the information she needs to navigate adolescence. That across a range of topics, whether that's sexually reproductive health, whether that's her mental well-being, or whether that's just like not feeling scared to, you know, take an exam, that there's going to be a big sis there to support her on that journey. and She doesn't feel like she can be alone on that. So hopefully that's the future. (laughs) And that's the trajectory of big sis.
1: Could be helpful for boys too, maybe.
2: Yeah. We'll be boy effect at that time. Okay. Fair
1: point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right
0: wonderful um and so next we have the correlation game is
1: it is, is it, it?
0: So the correlation game is this game in which we give you two variables, uh, and you need to guess whether these are correlated or or not. And so you just give us a number between negative 1 and plus 1, plus 1 if you think they are highly positively
1: correlated. Well, well, hold on. I wouldn't say that because plus 1 is perfect correlation, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. So, I mean... i the extremes in, here. Okay, okay, but you're, you're, you're motivating her to say a really large number. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, negative one, um, a perfect negative correlation. Uh, zero, there's no correlation at all. And then, obviously, anything in between, you know, it could be like 0.7 or just negative 0.2.
1: Or negative basically. 0.01 plus 0.01. A lot of things are very, you know, marginally correlated. And uh, why don't we give? Since I don't know if we've ever done this with two guests before, but it would be nice to maybe have them, have them, you know, think out loud together on it. Yeah, that'd be great.
3: Do we also have to explain why we chose a certain number? It could be fun. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, and there's one other thing that I ask for, which is super demanding and uh, pain in the butt. Which is, I want you to give me. Do I usually ask for an 80 percent confidence credible interval? On your I prediction? Think it,
0: I think it's been eighty percent, yes. It's been eighty percent.
2: That's a lot of numbers. I, I'm I'm struggling a little bit, but I'm gonna I can I can give it my best shot. <laughs> I am only nice. a fine arts student when I went to school, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll try my best.
0: <laughs> so the two variables are and this comes from the context of uh workations, so the idea that's you know more and more people are combining vacations with working like like David is doing right now (laughs) from Puerto Rico. Uh, So this is actually coming from a company called Polydew, and they have a very interesting data set that compares different cities like Bangkok, Lisbon, Barcelona, Istanbul, Budapest, Madrid, and sees uh, what are the kind of the, the interesting factors in terms of having a good workation. And so the two variables are Number of things to do according to TripAdvisor versus number of co-working spaces.
1: Well what what goes into your thinking, Mana? I mean a city the number of co-working spaces in a city and the number of things to do, whatever that means according to TripAdvisor.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just feel there's it's they're both just so different. And if even if I'm going for vacation, maybe I would be looking for a co working space, but it's, yeah. But co working spaces would basically be where you can go and share the space and work for, and the number of places on TripAdvisor would be the highest rated tourist places that you can go visit. Um, and would someone be interested in both at the same time when they're planning a vacation?
1: Um, Maybe not, but that's not what the question's asking, right? The question's yeah. just saying. What is the relationship, so it's the covariance divided by the standard deviations multiplied, or something close to that, between the number of things to do, according to TripAdvisor, in a city and the number of co-working locations in a city? So the question is that if a city has more co-working locations, will it have more things to do or fewer?
0: And I can give a very concrete example of this. I know that in the Mayan Riviera it's become like a really popular place for digital nomads to work, um, and so you have these lots of co-working spaces that have kind of popped out of nowhere over the last, you know, few years. Um, but also access to many things like visiting pyramids and other cultural events uh, that are taking place in those cities.
2: With that, but there
1: seems to be a huge confound here, no, Mana? I mean, yeah. what do you think?
3: Yeah. I do have an answer already but I want to think it through a bit more.
1: I mean, I, are these cities I of the an same answer. size? Good.
3: Yeah, and yeah, there's so many particulars
2: that we don't know. Can I just give my like uninformed like how I'm interpreting it? So, what yeah. you're saying is that the trends in in holidays and what how people are choosing their destination is given that during a time of COVID? Uh, given the fact that people are now working more from home, they can work from wherever they where they want. Um, but in doing that, they need to be in a space where they can act, actually work effectively. So there should be a increasing high correlation between number of places to visit and co working spaces.
0: Yeah, we're not necessarily looking at it over time, but but okay. but yes, I, I mean I, I, at this moment in time, do we think that places that have a lot of interesting cultural things, uh, do they also have uh, a lot of co-working spaces for these digital nomads who are doing workations.
3: I think I would go with a score of zero point four, and my confidence interval would be zero to zero point six.
1: Okay, and do you want to give a little bit about your thinking?
3: Yeah. Um, so I I'm basing my answer on the idea that mostly the places with more areas that you can visit are usually larger cities yeah big cities and they are bound to have co-working spaces uh because people come there to visit they come there to, to work as well you have to create spaces for them to work um because there's a huge influx of people visiting so, yeah that's what i based my answer on
1: that makes a lot of sense to me karina what what are your thoughts you would you second that
3: yeah
1: that's right. actually
0: a pretty good guess let's go to uh, the big board yeah, What's the answer? So uh, the Spearman correlation of this is 0.56.
1: Oh, wow. Oh. That's really close. And yeah. obviously within your target interval, so nice.
0: Yeah. All Uh That was the correlation game. Well done.
3: Thank you.
1: I don't know if I'm the only one that has fun with the correlation game. But
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It
1: <laughs> hasn't caught on yet nationally, like Wordle or something, but we'll see. <laughs> yes, like Wordle, yes.
0: <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much both for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you both. Is there anything else uh, you guys wanted to share or any uh, place that you can guys people can get in touch with Girl Effect?
2: Yeah, I mean, if girls or if anyone's interested in knowing a little bit more about Girl Effect, they can go to www.girleffect.org. Nice.
0: Fantastic. All right, uh, remember, if you want to get in touch with us at Profusion, you can email us at hello at profusion.com or... Or by following us on Twitter at PRFSN. Uh, Thanks, David, for joining me as always. I will be back soon talking to yet more data leaders, changing the landscape. But until then, stay correlated. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.